Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. In this episode, we are talking with Jim Light. Jim will share with us his introduction to Charles Frazier, his experiences working as Frazier's financial assistant in the early years, and then building the tennis mecca in Sea Pines as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Jim Light spent 10 years early in his career working in Sea Pines. In 1975, he was named president of the Sea Pines Corporation. Jim is a founding partner of Chafin Light. Chafin Light develops and operates high-quality recreation and resort communities. Chafin Light's mission statement is to create authentic, natural, and livable places that foster rewarding life experiences. A few of their developments are Snowmass Village, Iron Bridge, and Roaring Fork Club in Colorado, and Spring Island, Kalawasi Island and Chachesi Creek Club in South Carolina. Jim Light was a trustee of the Urban Land Institute for six years and chairman of the Urban Land Institute Recreation Development Council. And Jim and I have at least one thing in common. We both met our wives on blind dates. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, Jay, thank you. I'm, I'm impressed with what you're doing. I think this is just a fun series because people want to know more and more about the uh, history of sea pines and, and Charles in particular. Absolutely. It's uh, the, the response has been fantastic. We've been downloaded in 39 states and I believe nine or 10 uh, foreign countries at this point. So we're very excited about the direction of it. And we appreciate you taking the, the time uh, to come on and talk about your experiences about the early days of sea pines. And while I'm sure we could get into long stories about how we met our wives, I'm going to move. <laughs> I'm not sure there'll be a big demand for that. So I'm going to move straight into your early days in Sea Pines. How were you introduced to Charles Frazier and Sea Pines? I think each who came in the early days would have their one-of-a-kind story, but I hitchhiked to Hilton Head the summer of uh, 1967. I was working in Roanoke, Virginia, and Exeter classmate of mine was Charles's uh, legal assistant. So we, I just got invited by my friend to come down to the beach, not knowing what Sea Pines was or who Charles was. And so when my friend found I was interested in real estate, well, he said, would you like an introduction to Charles Fraser? And as I mentioned, I'd flown into Savannah and hitchhiked and with a couple of rides was over to Hilton Head on the cheap. You had some reservations about coming to the island. Why was that and what changed your mind? Well, I had come back to the island in the fall of uh, 67 for a a more formal interview, a longer interview, and had been interested in real estate development in the Southeast and had been interviewing. I also interviewed at what is now Bank of America, then uh, NCNB. So I had some other uh, choices. And then Charles wasn't able to make the offer until he lined up for sure the uh, equity capital from Travelers Insurance Company for Harbortown and, and two other projects. So he wasn't ready to make an offer. I was looking at other things. But when he, by the time he did make the offer, I had three other things to do. And I said, well, I'll go down one more time. And the bottom line, Jay, is what he said to me is that he said, look, you'll be able to work hard and you'll be able to succeed if you if you produce and you work hard and you produce. That's the bottom line. So he really laid out the incentive. And that that motivated me. And of course, it was exciting to be involved in new community development. And even though it had been Charles had been developing there a dozen years in 1968 and had done a huge amount of the hard work getting a new community started, uh, it was still a risky venture. But I thought, well, I'll go for a year and see how that works out. When you visited the islands, you said he had 
been developing for about 12 years to that point, but it was still probably very raw and rough. Could you see his vision of what he was trying to do? Yes, there were, there were two golf courses, the Ocean and Sea Marsh, and the Plantation Club, and um, maybe 50 houses. And by the way, uh, I like the concept of the mixture of the resort community and the residential community. You know, and over time, there can be as each mature, they can get in each other's way. But uh, I like that 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 whole idea. And then he had such a clear vision for Harbortown and South Beach that there was plenty to uh, plenty to work on. And uh, I started as his assistant, and that meant trailing around wherever he went to take notes on meetings. And over time, people would start to call me back and say, well, tell me what that meant. And I would ask Charles for clarity, or later I could say, we're doing it this way, uh, interpreting what Charles had said. So he then put me in charge of the Travelers Joint Venture, which was the uh, capital partner being Travelers. And I had nobody that reported to me, but I had a position of importance early on because I would report to Travelers on what was going on. And then I would have to work with our group for brokerage, like you'd hire a normal broker, but I was hiring our own people and everything we did, uh, I became the point person for that. So it was exciting to move from just a pure staff thing to something that was a coordinating and exciting project. When you were staff early on, what were you working on? And tell us who Ralph Lifshitz was. We had a pretty stable management structure, seven vice presidents in charge of the, pl- the plantation club in charge of golf, in charge of real estate sales, m- marketing and produ- uh, promotion, the Hilton Head Inn, and so on. So what I volunteered to do was any job the others didn't want to do. So I, I was given signs like, go create a new map and sign system, which I didn't know how to do that, but you had to figure out how to do it. But I started leasing the shops in the Harbor House. And there's two young guys that came down and they started talking about Ralph uh, Lifshitz, and uh, who's changing his brand name to Ralph Loren, and they wanted to open up a shop called Polo and feature his merchandise. And at that time, I didn't know who he was. And I had other similar examples of leasing an, an art gallery, for example, someone represented artists that I didn't know about, but I basically was in charge of leasing those. And it turned out that Nickers was, was uh, and Ralph Loren was quite successful. I have a couple, a couple of old shirts that, that that I've saved from back there. That's before the logo was everywhere. But I have the polo shirts with no logo on them. Wow! And the retails has changed a lot since then. But we it was an example of Charles being willing to uh, try something new. So I would I would have a tenant like this and say, Charles, I think this is something that's real exciting. He said, Tell me about them. And I said, Well, here's what I've been able to find out. And he would say, Well, ask him these questions or Let's go with it. Uh, Joe DeMars had a had this art gallery, and he was going to tell me all these. He was an artist himself, and he he was going to bring in all these artists, and he lists all of them. And I went back to Charles, and I said, this guy either knows nothing or he's the real thing, because he's listed all these artists that I know nothing about. But it was then very uh, contemporary, incredibly good artists, well-known regionally in New York, et cetera. And we still have a few pieces of art that we collected from that time. But Charles would would jump on a new idea saying, we need an art gallery. Let's go for it. You mentioned the sign system and street names for Sea Pines. And I was doing an episode with Rich Thomas. We were talking about how Hilton Head got its name and some of the names of certain things around the island. And we were discussing Sea Pines and he wasn't real certain how 
all the street names were chosen for sea pines. Can you shed some light on that? One of the characteristics of Charles was, uh, in my opinion, was his authenticity. And uh, so he was very interested in the environment and wanted, he was also an educator. So he named all of those roads that went down to the beach neighborhoods uh, after uh, birds. He, by the way, had a very uh, important Audubon uh, collection. But so that was part of it. And then there were some with historic names like the Baynard uh, Road after there's a Baynard plantation on old plantation ruins on the, within Sea Pines. And then others uh, were, for example, Lighthouse Road was named before Harbortown started, but it was he had planned to build that lighthouse and named it Lighthouse Road. Tell us about the William Hilton Inn. Where was it and what was it like? Charles started, uh, he opened the gates of Sea Pines, opened for business in 1956, and he realized that people needed a, a place to stay. So they built the Hilton Head Inn and expanded it. It is now, it later became a Marriott, but it was outside the gates from Sea Pines Plantation, just up the beach, about half a mile toward Caligny Circle. But that was a bold undertaking to get into the hotel business, and he felt like he needed to do it and and, and pulled it off. What was that hotel like? I've seen a few select photos of it, but I understand you know the dining room was you know very nice, and you know, the staff was dressed very well. And part of his research was the, at the Sea Island Company, and he was friends with the Jones family. So a lot of the ideas of operation, operational quality, probably came came from there. As I mentioned briefly, he had this collection of those, I don't know if they call them elephant, but they're the large uh, Audubon prints uh, all over the Hilton Head Inn. So it was a very sophisticated, and, and by the way, uh, at the Plantation Club, similarly, he had an architecture that was evolved to be a sea pines or low country architecture. He had uh, young architects, including Doug Corcoran, uh, Ed Wiggins, uh, I'll think of some others that, that were eager to eager to do something different and they evolved their own little style. But I would say that the Plantation Club had a slightly Asian flavor to it, very sophisticated, but the roof line would have been something not, not quite like a pagoda, but, but a subtle two uh, cones that came up in the roof. So he was very sophisticated in uh, architecture and interior design. It's my understanding that there was actually a tiki hut outside the plantation club that was actually the pro shop. Is that correct? It was. Uh, Pete McGinney uh, designed that, I believe, and then they added on. And that became the lake house where we would, where I would, as a bachelor, go for breakfast uh, many times. But it was a, on a small little simple building and right on the right on the lake at the beginning of those two, uh, two golf courses. You mentioned your involvement with Travelers Insurance, and they were an extremely important partner for Fraser and Sea Pines. Tell us about that relationship, why it was so important, and what it was like working with them. Charles somehow had met the Travelers Insurance people gotten to know the very top people and proposed this joint venture that included the capital for Harbortown and, and South Beach. When that closed, and, and by the way, from a personal point of view, that's what, as I mentioned, triggered the opportunity for me to work. And my predecessor, Charles' assistant, Denny McCurry, went to work as the CFO for the company. But Travelers was, uh, conceptually, it was the right thing, the way to capitalize something with that amount of uncertainty. So you have an, a strong equity partner but they were fantastic to deal with. As Stu Dawson was talking about, you know, you have decisions about the lighthouse and what should go in and attach to the lighthouse. We had the Harbor House and I was doing 
research and our little snack bar that we planned there was way too little. So I went back to the travelers and said, here's what we would like to do. This was, you know, with Charles's authority, of course, and we wanted to build a Calabogie Cafe. So while the building's under construction, they, through their Atlanta office, could authorize changes to the business plan. They were, they were fantastic, really, to work with. And as Jim Chafin may have mentioned, or you've heard from others, at the, at the base of the lighthouse, there was a proposal for a, a crew lounge and a harbor master office. And I was down there crawling around. Uh, this building was under construction. And I thought the lounge meant, as it would in Boston, uh, a bar. And I went back to Charles. And I said, uh, no, excuse me. I went back to Joe. I said, Joe, what a great idea. It's a lounge, a bar right there. And he said, no, no, that's, that's for the crew. I said, what? And I said, that's one of the best places in the development. So I pitched Joe and then I pitched Charles on making it what became the, the bar there. But having travelers as a partner you could go back and say, we're making this change of plan. What do you think? And if they had questions, you answer them and you document them and they send more money. But it's very important to us to have that kind of partner and something where everything was one of a kind. The lighthouse, the shops, the tennis, uh, the golf, et cetera. They were just, they were great to work with. Tell us about the lighthouse and how the colors got chosen. The Sasaki firm was then called... Um, Saki, uh, Sasaki, Dawson, DeMay, and Ken DeMay was the architect, lead architect. And Charles had commissioned a number of studies of what that should look like. And, and by the time I got there, it had been resolved that it would be the horizontal bands that you see there. Uh, but there have been various other things that should have been decorated in some way with, you know, neat, cool graphics, all kinds of wacky ideas. But Charles had explored them. And then it came down to selecting the color, and I was out there on site with Charles and Joe. The harbor house was under construction. The girders were the color that was ad- adapted for the the sort of rusty uh, maroon color was the steel uh, girders. And Joe pointed over there, and he said, how about that? And Charles said, that's it. That's the color for the horizontal stripe. So it didn't come from the uh, creator the graphic design people didn't come from the architect it came from joe fraser one thing you noticed was that tennis was growing very quickly in Pines. there were lines at the courts you went to charles about the demand for tennis what was his reaction and what happened next well i was arrived in the fall of 1968 and by the spring of 1969 at the plantation club there were four hard surface tennis courts and so I was trying to learn how to play tennis, and I was going out in the mornings, and the lines got longer and longer. And so I went ripping into Charles's office and said, we need more tennis courts. And he said, tennis doesn't make money. And I said, well, we don't charge for it. And then he looked at me, and whether he literally said smartass or effectively said that, well, if you think there's demand for something and we can make money on it, then bring me a research budget. It was classic Charles, the Yale Law School training and being where on the law review, he trained to be, you could be the expert on a given topic, someone on, on any given day, if you did all your homework, someone could know more the next day, but you could know it. So he was very research oriented. So I put together a little budget, uh, went to South Florida, Houston and Southern California and came back. It was really clear how tennis was growing. So I, I said, Charles, here, here's what I'm learning. He said, well, then take it further. Tell me what you want to build, you know, program it, budget it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so that led to the initial tennis complex. And he asked me one big decision is what should the surface be on the tennis courts? I said it should be this Hartru, this copy of clay. And he said, what's the age difference? And I said, well, you know, I'm 27. I think that's about it. I think anybody older than, than me would want this. I didn't have data on that, but he would he accepted that, uh, and it was quite different and and much much better to have the surface that we applied there. Mr. Fraser agreed to expanding tennis in 1970, and during that process, you met a couple of attorneys that made a recommendation to you. What did they tell you to do, and how did that raise the worldwide profile of tennis and sea pines? It was Donald Dale and and Frank Craighill. They were fresh out of of Virginia Law School, but it both had been involved in amateur tennis. Donald in particular had been a, a dominant amateur. And, and it was in that phrase, a phase where tennis was going from amateur to pro. And so, so they were, they were promoting uh, tennis. And um, I'm not sure how they knew about us, but I didn't go seek them out. They came down and they said, well, you need a touring pro. And I said, well, what's a touring pro? said, so, well, it's you know someone who will travel around all over the country and wear your logo and spread the name. I said, well, that's a pretty good idea. What will it cost? I think it was fifteen thousand the first year, and then twenty, and then twenty-five, and it was kind of an unknown thing. So I said, well, who should we deal with? And he said, well, Stan Smith. And I said, well, who's he? Stan has since become a really good friend, but Stan was a dominant player out of uh, University of Southern California, but he was not well known then. And within a year of us signing, a, a little over a year, he'd won the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. So we got enormous publicity that way. But that's an example, by the way, of Charles was an incredible promoter. You know, stories going way back to being photographed with a uh, walking an alligator while dressed in his Brooks Brothers suit and his straw hat. He was lousy at sales, but he was incredible at promotion. So Charles said, yes, let's do this uh, touring pro. And then these same guys came back and they said, well, how would you like to do a little tennis tournament? So we were able to do a unique tennis tournament for men, for women on CBS. And that helped get a little publicity. And then the Family Circle Cup came along. We had other special events that were televised, and we realized that, and Charles was quite aware of the value of the television publicity. So uh, we spent a lot of money on that, but it helped promote tennis and helped promote all of Sea Pines Plantation. And we sold an enormous amount of real estate just based on the tennis and the good promotion. There are multiple examples, uh, I think, along the way. I like to <laughs> call it dumb luck, but what are the odds that the guy that you hire to be your tennis pro, your touring pro, goes on shortly after to win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. That is just an amazing stroke of luck. Absolutely. And we had a, we had a lot of those uh, things um, along, along the way, things that happened just like we were in the right place uh, at the right time. When E.G. Robinson was creating the Island Club, you and uh, Jim Chafin went down there and you realized that Frazier was actually creating an economic boom on the island because of his vision and what he was doing. Other people were able to come in behind him and build on what he had created. I thought back a lot about the Seapines company history and our expansion away from Hilton Head by buying Amelia Island, what became Amelia Island Plantation in, in Palmas de Mar in Puerto Rico. And I've I thought uh, over the years many times, if Charles had said, I'm just going to concentrate on Hilton Head 
he would have been much wealthier because of the, the risk that was being taken out and the risk of the inherent in a new place like Florida and, and Puerto Rico. But he, he, he did, he just shifted his focus away from Hilton Head starting around 1970. And I was with him, by the way, when uh, he negotiated brilliantly the purchase of 2,700 acres in Puerto Rico from a Hawaiian sugar company. And then Abelia, what became Amelia Plantation, but it also had another parcel north of there from uh, Union Carbide. So Charles was able to negotiate the price and the purchase terms. Very entrepreneurial, very, very good purchases. So as of 1970, our energies went into Florida, Puerto Rico, and then other other properties. How did that attempted development there change the financial picture for Fraser? And why do you think he got away from developing the rest of Hilton Head Island? I think that he really wanted to do primarily ocean front. And uh, Fred Hack and other partners had uh, developed Port Royal. That was a big chunk of oceanfront. He may or may not have tried to do Palmetto Dunes. I'm not sure. But I think the, the appeal to him was the scarcity of the Atlantic Oceanfront Beach. Uh, in, in Puerto Rico, uh, he had been doing research on a place that would be where have warm weather in the winter, predictably warm. So I went on a couple of research trips. We checked out the Bahamas. Uh, John Smith, who was then head of uh, marketing and public relations, John and Charles and I went to Hawaii and looked at a number of beautiful properties there, but it was too far, we thought, to manage. And Charles spotted this beautiful property that turned out to be Palmas in Puerto Rico and said, why didn't you show us this? And he said, well, it's in Puerto Rico. And Charles, we'd, we'd be happy in Puerto Rico. So it was very research-oriented, but it was also opportunistic in that he found what he wanted. Now, the Puerto Rico decision increased the debt load significantly. It was somewhat manageable until world events changed U.S. policy in 1973, and the Fed made a completely unpredictable decision that totally wrecked uh, development and the real estate market and the economy, quite frankly, as a whole. What happened and how did you end up working through that? Well, a, a couple of things. One is that I mentioned that the Travelers Joint Venture was the model for how to finance our properties. But as we as we began buying property at Amelia Island in Puerto Rico, there was a the real estate investment trusts were coming along, and so and and commercial banks were starting to loosen up. So we found very attractive, we thought, financing through REITs and through bank loans. We should have then found another travelers to have a lot less debt because of the risk. But the interest rates were 5% and the prime was 5% or so. And uh, interest rates were 3 4 5% over prime. This is what we borrowed. But then when the interest rates went to prime went to 12, all of our costs went way up, of course. And importantly, financing for our buyers was very expensive. So the, the rise in interest rate really hurt us because of our own overhead. So when sales slowed down, we had to really cut back the company, but it also hurt the buyers. As to the policy, Classic Charles had researched interest rates for 100 years back. He had read all the statements of Arthur Burns, then head of the Fed, and Charles was outraged because the surprise was Arthur Burns changed from what he said he was going to do to these dramatic rise in interest rates. And if you remember, that was just coming off of Vietnam, and it was a classic you know, guns and butter. We wanted both and we didn't raise taxes. So inflation occurred. So I think he had to do it. It was just that he had told the world he wasn't going to do it. So Charles wrote 
at least chapters on Charles's outrage of how he'd been let down by this change in federal policy. So do you think the Fed move was irresponsible or was it just something that a circumstance that they had no choice? I don't think it was necessarily irresponsible. It happened very quickly, though. If you remember in August of uh, 74, Nixon was resigning uh, and interest rates started moving up dramatically by then. So in the previous year, the Arabs had cut the, there'd been the Arab uh, oil embargo and they'd cut off the oil. But shockingly, our costs went up because of, of the uh, inter- interest rates and our demand went down because of the interest rates. So from our point of view, just put everything to, to a stop. But from a federal policy point of view, I think they probably did need to control inflation. I think they could have started earlier and gone more gently than the way they did. Charles always thought that Arthur Burns had personally gone out to nail Charles. I mean, Charles took it all personally because he was worth a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, his business was uh, collapsing. The Sea Pines Corporation owed Chase, I believe, $100 million at that point. You actually went up to New York to Chase to see them. Can you tell us about that meeting? Most of the uh, money was uh, that we owed was to Chase. It was a real estate investment trust. So I was made president of the company in uh, March of, of 1975. And, and the reason my background was in development, not in finance. But Charles felt that I could be calm enough and persuasive enough in dealing with these uh, bankers. And he couldn't stand a 26 or 28-year-old young banker telling him how Charles had screwed up. So um, outstanding to one lender the most was the uh, Chase Reed. So I called, tried to get an appointment. They wouldn't let me in. So I flew to New York anyway and went into this the president of Chase Reed and uh, talked to his uh, assistant and uh, secretary who wasn't going to let me in. So he's busy. And I'm sitting here thinking, we owe him $100 million and he can't see me? I said, his world must really be screwed up. And then I said to her pleasantly, I said, oh, that's fine. How does he go home? Is he a chauffeur? Take a ta- you may just let, I'm just going to, wherever he comes out of there, I'm going to go home with him. Well, she got the message and let me in to uh, talk with him. And he was quite receptive. And we were able to work out an important uh, restructuring of our loan. But that the world was really falling apart for the REITs because all of their projects faced similar things to what we were facing. And then they owed the money to banks. So that was an interesting example of owing somebody $100 million and you can't get an appointment with them. It seems like from 1974 all the way through close to the end of Reagan's first term that the world really and the economy really struggled all the way through uh, the Carter administration and through those first years of, of Reagan. They, there was an expression in 1977. Uh, so what do you call in Atlanta? What do you call someone with a 1974 uh, Mercedes and ball tires? You call him a developer because everything had been shut down. But by 77, when we were we were completed a workout that was I don't believe I gave you this figure, but we, we had $257 million in debt all in, in default when I became president of the company. And we had to sort all that out and took a great team, including our finance team and our project management team. But we were, by the end of 77, we had we were about to settle all of that debt. We, we would have been the third largest bankruptcy in the country at that time. Uh, so it would have been a mess. And by the way, Charles had thought about and advocated at one point going into bankruptcy. And I had resisted that and the rest of the board had, uh, and we were able to work it out privately. 
1977, you said you had worked through the debt issues and Charles at that point wanted to take over control of the company again. Share with us that transition and what it was like. Well, when he asked me to be the president of the company, it included all of our operations and in round numbers from the Hilton Head Inn, rental management, golf, tennis, et cetera, uh, at Sea Pines, we had roughly 20 million of income and 21 million of expenses. And it didn't make too much difference as long as we were selling a lot of real estate. So one of the things that I worked on hard with the operating people was to get our expenses down to 19 million so we could make a million bucks instead of lose a million bucks on the operations. But all of those people had reported to me uh, for two and a half years. And as things became about to be settled, we had sold off assets to to pay off debt at Amelia in Florida and Puerto Rico and other places. So the company was going to be much smaller again. And it was Charles's company. I, I might add that I had helped put down two attempted palace coups by two successive chief financial officers who with the banks were happy would have been happy to get rid of Charles but I said that's not right it's his company but when he wanted to run the company again he effectively wanted me to become the vice president of development again and that just didn't seem like it made sense to me it was his legal right it was his moral right it just didn't make sense to me to stay there and you know develop a few townhouses uh, or whatever here and there. Ironically, back in 1974, when all this was happening with the, the Fed move and the interest rates and the struggles at Sea Pines was happening, Kiowa Island came about. How was Charles Frazier actually involved in that project? Charles had been very familiar with that property for years or decades. And then the uh, Kuwait Investment Company was formed and bought that that property for seventeen million dollars from the royal family in the uh, in South Carolina. So we met with the principals of the Kuwait Investment. And by the way, it was half government and half private money. But we met with the uh, principals, and we had all of the resources they needed, including some of our key people that were coming out of Amelia Island or out of other out of other places. So we were able to put together a one incredible master plan to get it approved. This was during the uh, Arab oil embargo uh, through their planning uh, commission. And three, we could take a hotel that we designed for Amelia Island or a tennis club for Amelia or some other similar building. And we could modify them quickly to get in business. And then probably as important as all of that, we had really top people. Frank Bromley had run Amelia Island Plantation. Pat McKinney had worked for Jim Chafin in sales and took over as sales manager. Uh, the development people were very seasoned. So we could put the team in place. I think it was a perfect partnership between a big capital source and a good company. And we managed that for about three years. And I could describe how the, the denouement of all that, but uh, but as you go to Kiowa today, you'll see a masterpiece of master planning, sign control, a number of other things that took the best of what we had learned and applied them to Kiowa. You and Jim Chafin left for an opportunity to develop Snowmass in Colorado at that point. Tell us about that project and what lessons that you learned from your time at Sea Pines did you take with you and incorporate into Snowmass? In September of 77, I had that dinner meeting at the Plantation Club with Charles and asked Jim Chafin to come along as a potential referee because I thought it would lead to what it did. And that was Charles wanting to run the company. But that was the start in September, and, and and Jim and I were planning to go up to Forest Hills to see tennis, 
And I got a call from a friend of mine, from an acquaintance, really, who had 3,000 acres in snowmass. And so I said, why don't you, we'll meet up there in New York. And that's what we did. And we had this idea that we would help this individual, the entrepreneur, put his deal together. And Jim and I'd go out skiing and be on his board and, you know, get a few, you know, consulting income and, and some ski passes. But he said, no, this is something you'd have to do personally. So about that time, I had the dinner meeting with Charles and said, I need to be looking for a new future. So Jim and I went out in October and I'd been there in the summer in Aspen and Snowmass and Jim and I and families had been in there in the winter, but we'd never seen it in the fall. So we really got an idea about late October, mid to late October, how, what an extraordinary opportunity we had. And we were able to negotiate a purchase contract uh, that had very short terms. So by Thanksgiving, we had to put up 500000 as a down payment or deposit. And our close friend, Peter Lamont, Dr. Peter Lamont, would have backed us as entrepreneurs had we been in the Southeast, but he didn't want something in Colorado. But nevertheless, he took some shares out of his, uh, his bank vault and put them up as collateral. So we produced our 500000 on schedule. Two of the, the original partner I mentioned, we'd had a, a commitment orally from an insurance company in Western Massachusetts to put up the $7 million purchase money and that much more for development. So we were ready to to close early in the year. And our, our contract was up February 1, so we had to have all the money by then. So January 3rd, we got a call from the head of this insurance companies, the CFO, said the first time ever, but he'd been turned down. Uh, so Jim and I sort of dusted ourselves off. Uh, we had our friend's 500000 letter credit up. We'd never raised money privately. We made a list and basically left home for a full month and raised $7 million in commitments that month. So we became entrepreneurs, uh, I think, largely because uh, you know, how the mother eagle pushes the young eagle out, sort of nudges the young eaglet off the nest and you have to fly. So Charles pushed me out of the nest. And so Jim and I became 50-50 partners. And by April, of, you know, six months later, we had closed on a purchase and were a 3,000 acres in Snowmass and had a whole new career. We wanted to be community developers, not just developers of townhouses or lots or whatever. And that was an ethic that we got from Charles, being involved in so many things in the community. And so when we got to Snowmass, we built a very innovative project called the Snowmass Club. We completely renovated with Arnold Palmer at CSR Designers, the golf, we built brand new tennis. We emphasized quality, community, and summer because we knew there was a winter demand, but we wanted to focus on increasing demand in the summer. So a lot of the things we had learned directly from Charles, we applied. And incidentally, we built more affordable housing in our first year than had been built in the county in the previous 10 years because we had seen if it's going to grow, you need to have places for, for people to live. So we had so many influences, even though we're developing in the mountains, uh, the directly lessons learned from Charles. What was your relationship with Charles Frazier after you had left? For a, a little while, I would say it was strained. I wasn't entirely sure that he appreciated that I had put down two palace coups that people wanted to take over. I, I, there was an element of, of saying he's been a mentor. We've learned a lot, but I don't think he fully understood or valued what we made and, and had good people in place and so on. So there's an element of, the, of a little strain there, but that went by fairly quickly. So I would say like a matter of months or within a year, 
And then we started coming back to Hilton Head to vacation. And so it was like we were graduates, not we were we were both graduates of the Charles Fraser University, Ch- Chafe and I. And so we, that friendship uh, rekindled. I had always felt like I'd been uh, the favored son, if you will. Charles and Mary had two daughters. They loved my wife, Diane. They couldn't have been nicer to us personally. So it was a it was a very important business educational process plus a good personal process. And I was really happy to restore after a bit of a strain in there. Charles was way ahead of the curve when it came to responsible development. How do you think he influenced other developers around the country to do the same responsible development? Well, Charles was a member of the Urban Land Institute. This was a group of people from all over the country trying to improve the quality of development commercial development, residential development, and so on. So Charles had always had this, had us participate in ULI. And one of the things that happened uh, over time is that three uh, Charles, three of Charles's great managers, Jim Chafin, and then Harry Frampton, and then Ron Terwilliger, our former treasurer, had became president of this worldwide organization. So they, they made their own impacts beyond what, what Charles did. One of my first tours as a young assistant to Charles was take a Hawaiian sugar company owner around and became a, a major developer, a major development on Maui. So Charles was always willing to share information, either through informal things like I just mentioned or through uh, Urban Land Institute. He developed sea pines and really embraced the nature of the south end of the island, but he didn't own the entire island. And there was great risk at one point of basically development going amok. There was a great risk of other developers not embracing what he was doing and building towering resorts and that. Can you talk about his influence on making sure that Hilton Head stayed consistent from the north to south end? As you may have heard, Charles was, uh, as a Yale Yale Law School graduate, I learned about using deed covenants, which are private agreements between the purchaser and the seller of the property. And uh, that's the way he controlled land use in Seapines Plantation. But in 1956, Buford was a very poor county, and there's absolutely or virtually no zoning controls. So Charles, as as Seapines started going, and by the time I was there, he became advocates for sign controls, and uh, he used to be able to, in Jasper County, because you leave Buford County with no signs, and then you run across a little bit of Jasper County with tons of signs. But it was a, a living example of what might have been on Hilton Head. And then he was able to get the height limit appro- approved through the, uh, the county of five stories. So Charles was influential in the broadest uh, in the broadest way. He may have tried through persuasion uh, to to get others to do what he was doing, but uh, it was clearly a risk of people of, of going a totally different direction. Who was John McPhee and what was his relationship and impact with Charles Frazier? We had a, a contract to buy uh, roughly 20% of Cumberland Island, most of which was owned by the descendants of the Thomas Carnegie family, and and then there was a Coca-Cola heir that owned the northern end. Charles had a proposal to develop 20% of the property uh, into a sea pines plantation quality and then keep the rest of it open space. During that uh, process, John McPhee, who was a writer for the New Yorker and, and is today and written some incredible books, interviewed Charles along with David Brower. And Brower was a leader of the 
conservation movement in uh, in the in the West. And so it was a discussion uh, between Charles is let's develop this for people for enjo- people to enjoy a portion of it. Let's keep eighty percent. And even David Brower could hardly disagree. Now the Carnegie family later. Uh, put together a, a group, the National Park Service, and some private money to fund before the Park Service funded, and Charles sold out to them. But in that uh, book, Encounters with the Archdruid, it, it really was talked about, in a, Charles, in the broadest way, about developing places for people to recreate and improve the value of their lives and be happy versus having all of it preserved for uh, nature. What happened with sales after Stan Smith won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open? I would need to refresh my memory on the exact numbers, but all that area from the tennis courts down Lighthouse Road, we developed that. And so being in proximity to the tennis courts was an important feature, but it helped the rest of our the rest of our sales. Stan winning helped put us on the map. People were aware of where Seapine's plantation was that, that wouldn't have been. So it's hard to measure his benefit. But And, and his benefit, by the way, came by because his managers, as I mentioned, introduced to this uh, promoting through television. So Stan, through his character and quality and, and his success, uh, really uh, helped establish our entity as a high-quality uh, tennis place. How important was the Family Circle Cup, and what did it do for Sea Pines and the island as a whole? This Family Circle Cup kind of evolved because we were already hosting tennis, and um, and Dell and Craighill, as I recall, brought that tournament, but it could have been IMG, the other big promoting company that managed uh, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and so on. That was just sort of a natural. It was for uh, it was for uh, women. It, it was a it was a niche for us, but it's a very high quality and a lot of good tennis and the absolute best women tennis players. So again, that's the promotional genius of Charles of being willing to put up the money to start those first tournaments. And as they began going, they could stand on their own uh, pretty close. Where were you when you heard the news that he had passed? And what were your initial thoughts? Uh, I was out here. uh, We were living in uh, Colorado. I remember the complete shock of that. And one of the things that went through my mind was that Charles had said to me one time, you know, it's hard to imagine what death would be like. But for me, you know, I travel a lot. It'd be probably going down in a plane. And I thought of that's that's the kind of thing Charles would think through. I I hadn't thought a lot about it, Uh, but it struck me that he had some intuition that he might die in an accident. Secondly, uh, when I heard more details of the story, it was classic Charles because he was down there. His cancer had returned. He wanted some warm weather and he was had rented a boat to go out on the water to look back on the land where they had vacationed a few days. And that's classic Charles. I want to go research and see what this looks like. And then the strangest thing of all, a, a freak accident with a, an engine exploding. If you could have one final conversation with him, what would it be about? And what would your final words be to him? Gratitude. That was what I would express as I look back, because he, uh, it was great to work there, to have worked there. It's, it's what Jim Chafe and I elected to do is stay in the community development business. So I would uh, thank him for the impact on our lives. Second, point out of the impact of so many other people that I've mentioned, Harry Frampton, Ron Terwilliger, and many others who developed high-quality uh, urban uh, real estate. And then third, I think the conversation would be Charles pinging me for whatever's going on currently. 
that was one of his research methods of asking people, I would call it like a sonar in a submarine. He'd send out these pings and he would ask everybody an opinion on whatever's on his mind. So it would probably be a conversation he would dominate by just wanting more and more information. Jim, thank you so much for your time. It was great to be with you and we could compare all stories and I'm really enjoying as a consumer listening to the stories as well. If you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to subscribe and leave us a review. We will see you next time as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. 